So a new movie recently came out about the beloved Mr. Rogers. How many of you have seen it? Anybody seen this movie yet? I haven't yet. A few of you. Yeah, I've heard good things about it. Um, a better question is how many of us grew up watching his show? That's right. How many of us had our kids grow up watching this show? That's right. It's a very popular song. So perhaps you can sing along with me, right? It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood, a neighborly day for a beauty. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? I've always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. So let's make the most of this beautiful day. And since we're together, we might as well say, would you be mine? Could you be mine? Oh, won't you be my neighbor? Won't you please? Won't you please, please won't you be my neighbor? Excellent. You know, you guys sing pretty well. I just wanted to point that out. So, Mr. Rogers was someone who knew how to be a neighbor, and not just on the show. If you've never read up on him, like on Wikipedia or something, the man was just simply amazing. He was an awesome neighbor. You should uh, do that sometime. And in case you didn't already know, today is the final week of a series your pastor's been teaching through on being a better neighbor. And today is titled Graduate Neighboring. And it's actually me being a neighbor to Pastor Steve that has me speaking to you today. I wasn't expecting this. This was not planned. Uh, we were actually discussing having dinner uh, last week for the, you know, this Friday. And then we're like, oh, yeah, we can do something. And then on Monday, he texts me. He's like, oh, I got severe bronchitis. I don't think I'm going to be better by then. And I'm like, all right, well, if you need anything, just let me know. And then I just had this nagging voice that wouldn't leave me alone. So I texted him again and said, even if you want me to come speak on Sunday. And he said, okay, well, hey, thanks. I'll let you know on Wednesday. And then Wednesday, he texts me in the middle of the day and says, oh, I'm feeling fine. I think I'll be all right. So you're off the hook. And then like at 8 o'clock that night, he's like, well, never mind. I worked too hard today, so I'm, 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 I overdid it, so could you come speak? And by the way, we're speaking on the Good Samaritan and neighboring and stuff, so that's why I'm here. And, and the truth is, is that I'd be lying if I, said, if I said I didn't hope he would ask me because preachers just like preaching. So I'm, anyway, so it's, it's, a, it's, it's a, a, a win-win. A win-win. Anyway, a far better example of neighboring comes from a story that Jesus told to answer the question, who is my neighbor? Uh, if you've been in church for a while, you're likely quite familiar with it, but perhaps I'll be able to give you a fresh perspective on it today and show you how it is that God does not take neighboring lightly. He does not take neighboring lightly. We find the story in Luke chapter 10. I don't know if it'll be on the screens or not. I guess not, but you can look it up in your own Bibles. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25, it says this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. 
But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And he went to him and bandaged his wounds and pouring oil and wine. And he put the man on his own donkey, brought him into an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So the expert of the law shows that why he's an expert by quoting what Jesus would later say are the greatest and second greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But after Jesus affirms his answer, he clearly has some conviction going on, so he asks a clarifying question to try to justify his own shortcomings in this area. And Jesus answers with a simple but profound story. It begins with presumably a Jewish man walking the 20-mile road from Jerusalem down to Jericho. It's actually a pretty long way to walk. A little side note about this, Jericho is actually northeast of Jerusalem, northeast of Jerusalem. So in our Western culture, we would call that going up to Jericho rather than down, such as we would call it going up to Norfolk and down to Suffolk from here in Portsmouth, right? Well, in Israel, all directions are down when going from Jerusalem and up going to Jerusalem. And that's because Jerusalem was both the most important city in Israel and also the most elevated. So that's a little factoid you can bring up in casual conversation and sound smart. So anyway, this guy is traveling about 20 miles on foot, which would take about five to seven hours, effectively half a day. And though through a known dangerous region where robberies were common, and sure enough, probably about halfway through, He's attacked and left for dead. The next person to come by, who knows, how long, who knows how long later, is a Jewish priest on his way to Jerusalem from Jericho. Or, I'm sorry, from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's likely returning home after serving his week-long shift at the temple. He probably lives in Jericho. He spent the week in Jerusalem. He's doing his shift. He sees the man, and he just kind of stays far away as possible, and he goes on his way. Shortly after this, another temple worker, a Levite, comes by. He's probably headed to the temple to start his shift. Unlike the priest, he actually gets a little closer to the man to take a look, but after seeing his condition, also decides to leave him there. Now, in both of these cases, they had valid reasons for not wanting to get involved, okay? So don't just, you know, don't demonize them just yet. Uh, robbers would often do something like this where they'd leave a hurt or injured person or even a dead person as bait so that when someone came along and tried to help them, they'd attack them too. And so perhaps they feared for their lives. Another reason would be that they're afraid of touching what might be a dead person, which would make them ceremonially unclean, which would be quite a hassle for temple workers. They'd have to be out of work for like a week and do all these extra things to get back to clean status. Whatever their reasons, their desires for self-protection overruled the more important law that they surely knew of loving their neighbor. And here's the thing, they couldn't even make a case that this wasn't a neighbor because he was a fellow Jew. And the cultural thinking that Jews had, and of course Jesus alluded to in Matthew 5, is that they were to love their neighbors, which of course was their own kind, and hate their enemies, which was everybody else, the Gentiles and especially the half-breed Samaritans. And so this was one of their neighbors. Um, This part of the story certainly caused a stab of guilt to go through the expert of the law who had asked the question. It was an indictment of the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders like himself. 
Now, a more modern context, you could say that the priest is equivalent to a leader in the church, like an elder or a deacon. And the Levites, the equivalent to a dedicated volunteer, maybe someone who works in the children's ministry, because you know they got to be dedicated. Anyway, both very busy, diligent in their church duties, but when it comes to people and things outside of that church sphere, well, we'll come back to that. Jesus continues the story with a twist that no one expected. Of course, we do because we've heard the story, but at the time they didn't. A Samaritan comes by and does the right thing, the thing the Jewish leaders should have done. A Samaritan who is not even welcome in Jerusalem, much less the temple, a dirty half-breed who the Jews hate, and therefore they think God must hate this person too. The Samaritan stops helps the guy, puts medicine on him, wraps his wounds, loads him on his donkey, takes him to an inn, stays the night with him, gives the innkeeper two days' wages for expenses and promises to return and pay any extras. All for a guy who most definitely would not have done the same for him had the roles been reversed. Wouldn't have happened. Perhaps a modern equivalent in our religious culture would be a radical Muslim Someone who would consider any one of us Christians to be an infidel and deserving of death. He, instead of a stand-up church member who came by first, he does the right thing for someone he would consider an enemy. That's how shocking this would have been to the listeners of the time. There are some scholars who think that this story is not a parable at all, but a true story that Jesus knew about, similar to the story about Lazarus and the rich man who both died which really makes it even more convicting for his audience. Sadly, the modern equivalent I described probably isn't a parable either. It seems that at least in public perception, those who worship other gods are better at loving their neighbors than we are. In public perception, the people of this planet who worship not our God are better at loving their neighbors than we are. Jesus, in other words, we should be convicted too. We should be convicted. Jesus concludes the story with a charge. Go and do likewise. Go do what this Samaritan did. Now, he didn't exactly answer the question of who is my neighbor, did he? But instead showed what it means to be a neighbor to anyone, even an enemy. In other words, it would seem that the second greatest commandment of love your neighbor really means... Be a neighbor. Be a neighbor. That's because the kind of love that, is, that that commandment is not a matter of feeling, but action. It's agape love. It's the self-sacrificing kind of love. The kind of love that Jesus demonstrated and commanded his disciples to emulate when he said, As I have loved you, love one another. By this the world will know that you're my disciples. The Apostle John later spells out what that looks like. He says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, he says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Now, one important note about this verse is in the Greek, the word for life. The word for life. In the Greek, there are three words for life. There is bios, which is our physical, organic breathing, lungs, etc., kind of life. It's that you're actually alive. There's zoe, which is the eternal, divine life. And then there's suke, 
which is where we get our word psychology. Suke is the soul life. It is the part of your life that would be written in a biography. It's your thinking, walking, talking, working, playing, doing what you want to do. Life. And that is the life John is saying Christ laid down for us. Yes, he died physically, but he also laid down the life he would rather live and the things he would rather do for us. To lay down our lives like Christ means that we give up what we would rather do in order to do what is best for our neighbor. Let me say that again. To lay down our lives, what John is saying there, is we lay down our lives like Christ means that we give up what we would rather do to do what is best for our neighbor. And John spells out what that actually looks like in the context of this same verse. He continues in verse 17. He says, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. That pity is the same thing the Samaritan is said to have had for the injured man. And the Greek behind this statement literally says that you see someone in need, you have the means to help, but you close your heart to having pity on them. It's not that you don't notice, it's not that you didn't feel something, but you talked yourself out of turning it into action. And John says that if that's what you do, how can the love of God even be in you? Because the love of God is way more than thoughts and prayers, my friends. The love of God is self-sacrificing. It's a love of action. James says the same thing. James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, it is if not accompanied by action, is dead. So just like love is not real, Without actions to back it up, neither is faith. In other words, being a good neighbor is not optional for the true follower of Christ. It's not optional. It's not some higher level. It's not some graduate level, actually. It's not optional. As John says, how can the love of God be in you? James says, how can such a faith save you? A love of words, a faith of words, how can that save you? How can that be real? And even Paul makes this connection perfectly clear in the uncut version of one of our favorite verses. We love to quote Ephesians 2.8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That's where we usually like to stop, but that's actually stopping in the middle of the thought. He continues, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In other words, we are not saved by good works. This is important to understand. We are not saved by good works. It's exactly what Paul just said. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved for 
good works. We are not saved by them, but we are saved for them. With the chief of those good works being the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Jesus himself makes this clear in a few ways, such as the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7.21, a verse that always makes me shudder a little bit. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What is the will of the Father? Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Not everyone who makes a confession of faith will enter the kingdom of heaven but only those for whom the evidence shows that confession was real. And Jesus makes that abundantly clear in another not parable about the final judgment. Matthew 25, verse 31. Begins with, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. This is not a parable. This is a prediction. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to, wear, to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothes you? When did we see you sick or in prison or go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whenever you did it for the least of one of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. And then he says the same thing to the goats about what they didn't do. And then he concludes in verse 46, then they will go away to eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. Again, it is not the works that save us, but the works are the evidence that we are actually saved, that our faith is real, that the love of God really is in us, that the Holy Spirit lives in us. The works of love and compassion for the people who need it, whoever they are, The kind of love that is sacrificial, going out of your way for the benefit of others, just like Jesus did for for us, and just like the Good Samaritan. Note to what extent the Samaritan goes to help the stranger of the race of his enemies. He gives him his own first aid supplies, so that he he no doubt had for his own personal use, because he was going through a dangerous area, right? He gives him his mode of transportation, and goes on foot for at least another 10 miles or more likely. He goes out of his way to put him up in a hotel, which cost him time and money. He stayed with him for the night, taking care of him, and then left the innkeeper a blank check to take care of whatever else was needed, and he planned to come back to make sure that the care was, uh, and make sure that man was cared for. In other words, he was in it for the long haul until the man was restored. He gave up his comfort, his personal property, his time, his money, all for a man who most likely would not have done the same for him had the roles been reversed. In other words, he really had nothing to gain from this. Nothing at all. And plenty to lose. And that is the example 
we're to live up to. That is what it means to lay down your life. That is what it means to love your neighbor. And it's not optional. So, who is your neighbor? Who has God caused to cross your path and offer you an opportunity to be inconvenienced? Perhaps it's a relative who needs some financial assistance or a place to stay. Maybe it's a coworker who needs a babysitter or a ride to work. Maybe it's a proximity neighbor who needs their, late rakes, their leaves raked or their lawn mowed or their fence repaired, or maybe they just need a friend. Maybe it's a 17-year-old girl who is pregnant and terrified of telling her parents. Maybe it's a 30-year-old woman with four kids from four deadbeat dads and is pregnant with a fifth and not sure it's worth letting this one live. Maybe it's a woman who's 25 weeks pregnant and about to be homeless after a boyfriend is arrested and she can't afford the hotel they've been staying in anymore, and it's February. Are you catching a pattern here? That last one is actually living in my house right now, along with her six-month-old daughter. Did I mention I have five kids and a pregnant wife? And those other two were just down the hall of your church on Thursday, doing their last Mission Great Expectations class of this semester. And we still don't have a full team for January for those same ladies and others like them. And I don't believe in coincidences. (laughs) I don't believe it's a mere coincidence that I'm here preaching about neighboring, (laughs) not my idea, at a church that hosts the GE class, like it's right here, six weeks after speaking to you about this before. I didn't plan this. (laughs) God did. I believe that God is giving some of you a second chance to do the right thing. To do the thing you felt a pinch of conviction about six weeks ago, but talked yourself out of it. God is giving you a second chance to be the Samaritan rather than the Levite or the priest. And this may be the second chance for the rest of you as well. Perhaps right now you already know who God wants you to be a neighbor to that you've been putting off and avoiding. Well, now is your chance to make it right as well. But you have to decide today. Right now. In your heart, you know what he's asking you to do. You've already had time to count the cost. The only question that remains is whether you're going to keep passing by on the other side or whether you're going to stop and be a neighbor. The choice is yours. At this time, I'd like every head bowed. I don't know if you do that in this church, but every head bowed, no one moving around, not even the band yet, please, because this next part is important. I'm going to give you a call to action. Specific instructions on what to do with what you've heard today. That is the purpose of teaching and preaching. Did you know that? It's instruction, not entertainment. You see, entertainment is something you engage in and enjoy while it lasts. But when it's over, you go on before as if nothing changed. Well, instruction demands change. 
For example, when Jesus finished telling the story of the Good Samaritan, he didn't conclude by saying, did that answer your question? No, he said, go and do likewise. In fact, much of what I read today from Scripture included command language that should lead to action, not just mental acknowledgement. And so it's not really me that's giving the call to action, but God himself through his word that we read today. And what I'm going to do is give you a call to action that will help you to obey what the Holy Spirit is convicting you about right now. If he is really in you and you are letting him, not closing your heart to him, then he has no doubt brought a neighboring opportunity to mind that he wants you to act upon. And what I encourage you to do is simply take the opportunity right now to write it down, either in your phone, a connection card, a bulletin, something like that. Write it down. It doesn't have to be elaborate or detailed, just a word or a phrase that you, so you'll know what it means. Write it down now before the enemy has a chance to distract you and make you forget. Then, when service is over today, share it with someone you trust and ask them to hold you accountable for doing what God has asked you to do. I encourage you to do that with someone in this room before leaving this room. Because we all know that as soon as we leave the doors of the church, the enemy goes to work distracting and deceiving us, and you'll lose the conviction before you get to your car. We've all experienced this. So act upon it now before that happens. I'm serious. Write it down. Now, for those of you who believe, like I said, that today God is giving you a second chance to join the Mission Great Expectations team, and you want to obey him, then please see me immediately after service as I have some paperwork to give you that must be filled out this morning. I'll hang out here in the front after service. So let's pray. Lord, you are the example. You are a good God who didn't stay up in heaven and just send us money. You didn't just send us supplies. You didn't just send us thoughts and prayers from afar. You came and became one of us. You left the glory of heaven and took on the form of one of us dirty <laughs> dirt puppets, basically, with our stink, with our attitudes, with our disobedience. You became one of us. And walked among us for 30 years before you even did anything, Lord. And then all you did while you were here was help people. You healed people. You raised the dead. You made blind people see and deaf people hear. And you were constantly giving them good words and teaching them things that they could take on board. And then you did the ultimate thing. You died. You sacrificed yourself on the cross for us to take our place. But you didn't stay there. You rose from the dead. You rose from the dead. Now you are in glory, back in glory, back in heaven, but you're also among us. You promised in your word you would never leave us. You would never forsake us, that you're always with us. And now your Holy Spirit fills us. And you've said, go and do likewise. So Lord, give us the courage. Give us the confidence, to trust that we don't have to have the words to say. We don't have to know how it's going to work, but we just know that if you call us and you tell us to come out on the water, that it'll hold us up. 
And so, Lord, I pray this morning for courage for all of us as we feel the conviction of neighboring somebody, Lord, that you will bring us over the edge of actually doing it. And I ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.